You're listening to Table for Ten Billion, a limited podcast series from the World Bank examining the most important issues in food and agriculture. The digital revolution has changed every aspect of how we live, from how we do our jobs to how we spend our free time. It's also changed how we eat and the food system itself. I'm Jason Fields. Today we're offering two views of digital agriculture, from the public sector and from academia. Julian Lampietti, Manager for Global Engagement in Agriculture and Food Practice at the World Bank, will offer his views later in the show. But we begin today with Jessica Fonzo. Fonzo is a professor at Johns Hopkins who works on food policy. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk today about digital agriculture and how it relates to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. SDG2 calls for the elimination of hunger by 2030. Jessica, do you think that with current agricultural methods, we'll be able to reach that goal? I think it's a good question. Overall, I not to be pessimistic, but I think it's going to be very difficult for us to reach that goal, not just because of the way we produce food in the world, but for many other reasons and drivers of hunger and malnutrition. So I think the way it stands in reaching zero hunger and, and and malnutrition is a lofty goal. It's an inspiring and aspiring goal, but it's one that's going to be very hard to achieve, particularly in the context of climate change, ongoing conflicts in some parts of the world, now a pandemic, (laughs) potential economic impacts of that pandemic. I think it's going to be really difficult over the next 10 years to reach that goal. And, And there's been some work done by the Brookings Institution Global Nutrition Report and others reporting that the way we are moving to to try to achieve SDG2, we're not going to get there by 2030. And is it going to be a near miss or are we going to be way off? I know hunger's actually been growing over the last few years. Yeah, that's right. Hunger's been increasing for the last four years. And when we look at malnutrition, you know, in all of its forms, whether we're talking about stunting, chronic undernutrition, wasting, acute undernutrition, and overweight and obesity, all those forms of malnutrition. For stunting, we're seeing declines, but it's not fast enough to reach the, the 2030 goal. And some measures of malnutrition, wasting, and obesity is completely stagnant or rising in the case of obesity. So not only are some of the targets stagnant, but some are actually going in the wrong direction. And it begs the question of why, when we see some indicators of human development and progress, like child mortalities come down massively in the last couple of decades, why is it that nutrition is not improving around the world? Why is it that food security is not improving? And that's the golden question. Why, when some things are improving so much, has the nutri- nutritional status of populations and food systems not improving? 
thinking specifically of the role digital agriculture plays. You would think that as new technologies come online, that would improve the situation. Is that something that you've seen? Well, I think data evidence and putting it in the hands of decision makers who are working in agriculture or across food systems is critically important. And the more we can digitize that data, ensure that food system workers have that data in real time, can vastly improve decision making. I think we're just at the beginning of that data revolution and the technology that will allow for that revolution. But data is powerful. Data can inform decisions. It can uh, change decisions. So to me, it is an incredible vehicle to try to improve the situation. We just need to get more data out there and in the hands of those who are making decisions every day in the food system. And as far as it has an impact on, let's say, farmers who are actually out in the field, do you see that, does it go beyond the public or academic or government need for information? Is this something that can actually help people who are farmers, smallholders in particular? Absolutely. I think depending on the kind of data that they have access to, whether it's weather data or trade data or market data, that can be incredibly important in the way farmers or other food system workers are thinking about when to sell crops, which crops to grow, how to anticipate potential shocks to the system. So all critically important. And of course, farmers, they're business people, right? Every day they're having to make decisions and trying to avoid as much risk as possible. So the more data they have in hand that would allow for them to mitigate risk is really important. That said, governments also need data. They need better data. Food systems are complex. It's not just agriculture. Food is grown, moved, stored, processed, packaged, and it hits retail. It's a complex machinery to to govern. And the more data governments have in hand, the better they can try to address shortfalls and challenges that their food systems are facing. So governments, private sector, farmers, consumers, the more data they have, and that data being easily accessible and easily understandable is are really important pieces in, in ensuring that our food systems are working for us. Are there technologies out there that you think are going to disrupt the whole business of food? A lot of people talk about blockchain technology. That I think that could be important. I think we have not really seen everything that we can do with mobile phones. We certainly haven't on the consumer side. It'd be wonderful if consumers could scan food and understand its health and environmental impacts. Or you could imagine the possibilities on smartphones. You know, there's other a lot of other technologies like drones, robotics, all of these tools that can really create efficiencies in landscapes. But with all of these technologies, there's ethical dilemmas and ethical challenges around employment, ensuring fairness of distribution of these technologies, ensuring people don't get left behind. So with every technology that comes on board, 
there's political, ethical, and the equity issues related to those technologies that we have to consider, ensuring they do no harm, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen that so many times in the past in international development with certain technologies that seem to be doing something good, but there's always a trade-off, isn't there? Do you see a way that uh, we can get ahead of that, to better know how one change in the system will affect other parts of it? I think there's there's so many lessons from the past. I think sometimes we forget to look back. <laughs> so maybe we need historians sitting at the table. We need ethicists sitting at the table to remind us of our history and what what was considered unethical or infringed on social justice issues or created environmental or health harms. I think sometimes that's important for us to to look back. We trudge forward with blinders on of that the next technology is going to save the world. But I think there's a lot of lessons that we need to continually remind ourselves about. But I think there's going to always be the unknowns, the unknown unknowns of technology that we just don't anticipate, that we can't model, we can't predict. And does that mean that we should not do anything? Absolutely not. We have to move forward with best practices and lessons learned in hand and try to forge a path forward using some of these pretty exciting technologies that are, are coming about. There's a lot of debate now about technology and how does it infringe on certain populations, indigenous peoples, smallholders, other peasants. How do we incorporate that technology, but also give equal footing to their knowledge, their practices, and their history? That's the, the balance we need to strike is the deep knowledge that already exists and pair that with some of these new technologies and figure out a way to to bring both to the table with uh, in an equal way so the challenge is to make sure that advanced technologies don't come into the marketplace and throw it into chaos put people out of work and perhaps actually make the environment even worse Uh that's a concern Yeah, absolutely. And that it doesn't replace completely longstanding cultures and traditions that exist with related to food. Food is holds a special place in society. It's not just for consumption, it holds a lot of other values. And when technologies are introduced, it can often scare people into with issues of justice issues and equity issues. Anytime new technologies are introduced, we have to think about some of the longstanding social ties of food with culture and will technology disrupt that culture? It's a question that we often have to be considering when we think about some of the the latest technologies that may completely disrupt the system for better or for worse. Is there any technology that you're aware of that you think would be particularly disruptive that is developing right now or gaining ascendance right now? I think the alternative protein space could be incredibly disruptive for positive and negative reasons. So that's the not only the plant-based protein sources, the alternative meats, but the lab-grown meats and you know, fish grown from stem cells. I think those are could be incredibly disruptive. Some have argued 
could completely eliminate the livestock sector. <laughs> That's pretty disruptive, I would say. But again, there's deep concern from many consumers about eating food grown in a lab, like genetically modified organisms has brought. There's suspicion and ethical issues related to those foods that those companies that are developing those technologies will have to face and try to understand. So I think those new foods, lab-grown meats, et cetera, could be incredibly transformative from an environmental perspective, but in, in positive ways, but in animal welfare ways, very positive, but could be negatively disruptive for livelihoods, potentially negatively associated with mistrust of where food comes from consumers. So I think it'll be disruptive in different ways, but they're coming and there's demand for them in certain places. Whether or not that becomes a global demand will be the question. But that's what I would consider very potentially disruptive technology is the whole lab-grown meat space. So you see that as potentially being viable, uh, which is interesting. I, I just don't know at this don't, point. I don't know either, Jason. Yeah, I don't know. They're, the alternative meets, is that hype or is there a real market there? Early signals show there's that market exists and it's growing. But will it be at the level of where it creates, quote, disruption and, and the livestock industry collapses? I can't imagine that happening for so many reasons, even power issues with the livestock sector. They're incredibly powerful in the United States. They're a growing sector in Africa, in Asia. So I, I just, it doesn't seem like it could be, but the world has shocked us before. I, yeah, you never know. Jessica Fonzo, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the future. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to Table for 10 Billion from the World Bank. And we're back. In our first segment, we spoke with Jessica Fonzo about her view of the future of agriculture. Now is the World Bank's own Julian Lampietti. Julian, thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to start off in the same place that I did with Jessica. As you see it, can you imagine that we'll actually reach SDG2 with current available methods of agriculture? Thanks a lot, Jason. And I, I think that's a, a tough question. So one of the things that's happening is people all over the world are getting richer and wanting more food and different kinds of food. And can we uh, continue to produce enough food and different kinds of food for all of those people as uh, the world changes around us and we try to reach SDG two by 2030? I think the answer is no, because we would uh, have to expand uh, into all sorts of areas, new areas of land that we really don't want to expand into because we want to conserve them because they produce a lot of other values. Therefore, I think that we need to focus on technology 
and technology that changes the productivity of farming, but also the business of food. And the more we can do that, the more likely we are to be able to reach SDG2, produce enough food of the kind people want, but also do it in a way that doesn't destroy the planet. What technologies do you see as being key to achieving those goals? So there's a lot of different technologies out there that are going to be really helpful in achieving these goals. The one that I'm most passionate and interested in uh, right now is digital technology. And what I think is really interesting about this technology when it comes to agriculture is that it changes uh, a lot of the very fundamental things that we know about how agricultural business is done. And what is a real revolution in this space in agriculture right now. And we have a history of agricultural revolutions. So in the late 1900s, we had the advent of machinery to till fields, the industrial revolution in agriculture, tractors and such, and that tremendously increased our productivity. And more recently in the 1970s, we had what's known as the green revolution, where people had better varieties of seeds and fertilizers. And both of those revolutions started on the farm and were all about increasing agricultural productivity. What's different in today's digital revolution is that started in other sectors of the economy and it's changing everything up and down the value chain all the way from the farmer, literally to the fork where the food is that goes into your mouth at the table. And it's creating a much, much more efficient system at every point, every node in that very complex supply chain that moves the food from the 600 million farmers that produce it to the 8 billion consumers that consume it. Now, my hope, my dream is that small farmers who have small areas of land can actually benefit from a system where they can direct market to a consumer like you. So say you want organic grass-fed beef, Jason. Can you find someone who can actually deliver that beef to your table using uh, the internet system at a cost that is actually feasible for you? And so to me, this digital technology is changing everything about the way the food system works because it makes the cost so much lower and the information so much easier to get. So you're really talking about the pure data part of digital technology at this point, right? Uh, or should we also talk a little bit about how that data is used in logistics? And because that seems to be when you're talking about getting food from a farm to me in an efficient way, there's a bunch of different parts of that, right? It's letting me order that food, but it's also making sure that you can get that food to me. So can we talk a little bit about the value chain? Uh, absolutely. So it actually starts before you ever get to the farm. As a, as a kid growing up, when, when I would drive a tractor around and that tractor would break, I was looking at probably a week's lost time where that tractor had to get driven into town to the shop, get worked on by the mechanic, and then delivered back. And that had a lot of consequences on the farm. Today, on the farm... I take out my iPhone, 
I talk to the mechanic. We go over what the problem is. We order the parts online through any number of uh, suppliers. And then I can either fix it right there or the mechanic shows up at the farm on the day the part arrives and fixes it. All of the upstream things that go into farming, whether it's fertilizers or pesticides or machinery or inputs, all of those markets become super efficient for the farmer. And the farmer can actually sit at home and order a lot of the things they need rather than having to drive into town and find them in various stores. So the huge number of upstream businesses and inputs that go into a farm become tremendously more efficient. Now, then there's the incredibly complex process of manufacturing things on a farm. So what do I do in the field where there's this soil versus that soil or this animal versus that animal? And a farmer who can get onto the internet and access information has more possibilities to understand what's going on than um, they've ever had before. And a really simple example is you can now use your smartphone to take a picture of a, a disease that's affecting an animal or a plant and instantaneously get results on what that disease may be and understand how to treat it. So the precision involved in agriculture is changing dramatically based on the amount of data that's available. Now, when you go downstream, again, it, every node of that supply chain is changing in terms of how much more efficient it gets. And the part that I find uh, most exciting is that you as a consumer can really almost virtually interact with me as a producer. And you can say, I want this cup of grass-fed beef, Julian Lampietti. And then I'm a farmer. I put that grass-fed beef into the system, a truck will come and pick it up. And within a day or two, it's delivered to your house or even possibly less. And all of that is fully possible. And the digital technology changes the idea of economies of scale, because when you build a system, the marginal cost of doing an additional transaction in that system is essentially zero. So the cost of a consumer finding a driver can be very high if you're just standing on the street corner waiting. Now you build this very complicated system that allows everyone to know where the drivers are and where the passengers are. And you can apply that same logic to agriculture. Once you got the system built, the cost of the consumer of the food, finding the producer of the food that they want becomes actually just another transaction and very low. And that's one of the things that could really revolutionize how our agriculture system works and our food system works so that consumers who want certain kinds of products, hopefully good, clean, healthy products can find them and really keep those farmers in business. How does that help overall to make the system more sustainable? Does it? So uh, fundamentally, if we believe that people want to put good things in their bodies, and they want the knowledge of what those things are, they can drive a system where they encourage producers to produce those good things. And so it's about information. It's about knowing where your food is coming from. It's about knowing how that food was produced, what practices went into it, so that you demand those things and the farmers produce those things and the companies in between in that value chain understand that there's a premium for doing those good things. 
I think all of those things can increase the sustainability of our food system and lead it to produce a better world. So a, a, a really good example is uh, child labor and chocolate. So chocolate is an extremely highly valuable commodity. Unfortunately, a lot of the time it's, it can be produced using labor of children who don't go to school because they're busy working in the fields, in the forest, uh, growing their chocolate. Now, can we design a system where people who produce labor, child labor-free chocolate or whose children are being kept in school get a premium for their chocolate? And I, I think consumers will be willing to pay for that. So that's just one example of the way the system can really work. And it becomes much easier to do with digital technology. I think that's an interesting example because I actually worked on human trafficking and labor issues before I came to the bank and became familiar with one brand, which is Tony Chocolonely, which is, that's actually what their whole model is. They charge you a little bit more and they promise that there's no child labor or forced labor along the value chain. Um, the reason why I mention it specifically is it still operates at a relatively small scale and it's not always easy to find. How do we change something like that? How do we put turn it into a real scale, do you think? So great question. And I think that's a, a part we're struggling with. I think the one of the keys is who has access to what data and if you think about the process that underlies, you call the Tony Chocolonis uh, chocolate value chain, that company, Tony's company, is going to be trying to put in place a system that tracks child labor for their chocolate. And then only the producers that Tony has a relationship with benefit from Tony's system and put chocolate into Tony's value chain that gets to only the consumers that are consuming Tony's chocolonies. The question that I want us to ask is, can you build an open system, a system where anyone who has uh, child labor-free chocolate that they're producing can put it in, and anyone from Mars to Hershey's Tony Chocoloni can go into that virtual platform of a market and compete for the child-free chocolate that is being produced. And if we create a system that in a sense is open and people compete to buy that child-free chocolate in a much more even way than one person capturing the value chain, Maybe you can take it to scale that way because the costs of it will go down and uh, you'll actually expand the consumer base dramatically. And at the end of the day, if someone is in a grocery store and there's two chocolate bars side by side and one is child labor free and the other one isn't, what do you think they're going to choose? Maybe not if there's a dramatic difference in price, but you know, I think people will start making the right kinds of social choices over time. And it's not just social choices that uh, I think we've been talking about, but also nutritional choices. That the idea is that the information about nutrition for particular foods would be passed along down that value chain so that people can make good choices. Is that right? That's uh, absolutely right. And I think I, I want to go back to the 
grass-fed beef topic that we were on to earlier. A lot of people say grass-fed beef is better for your uh, health. Okay? It produces certain kinds of, I guess, uh, the fats aren't as saturated. And so it's better for your health uh, to eat grass-fed beef. And I think the really interesting aspect of this is so you have a local government or national government that often pays farmers to engage in certain kinds of sustainable practices. So they would encourage the farmer to have sustainable pastures, fence the cattle out of the streams so they don't get in there and muck the streams up and cause erosion, maybe grow their grasses in their pastures over six inches high so that there's more biodiversity, these other great things. And those cattle are healthier as a result of this. Now, the farmers, unless they specialize in marketing their product as grown on these kinds of fields where there's less erosion and there's more biodiversity, they don't really benefit other than the payment they receive from the state for doing that. Now, here's the idea I want to talk about is, can the state give you a digital token saying you participated in this program and that digital token is attached to your cow, much like an ear tag is attached to a cow's ear, and so when that cow goes into the market, it actually is sorted and is paid a premium for that kind of beef that was part of those good sustainable programs that are also producing a product that's healthy for you. And the state has already paid you to do these practices on your farm. And you can capture more of the value from doing those good things if your beef is somehow digitally tagged through the supply chain. And uh, to me, that's like a, a, a great sort of win-win opportunity of an existing program that you could just create this digital token and make it much more remunerative for the farmers and easier for the consumers to, again, buy the kind of products that they feel are healthy for them. And do you think this is something that can work around the world from richer countries to poorer countries? Or is this something, when you talk about a premium, it just makes me wonder if that's something that only richer countries can afford to do. So Jason, that's a really important and difficult question. Now, at the end of the day, uh, the world needs to be a more equitable and just place. And so our responsibility is to figure out how to design these programs so that everyone in the world, both poor and rich can benefit from them. And I think there's a, a tremendous amount of opportunities that are gonna come where people in those poor countries can do the kinds of things that can not only support or allow them to sell their products to rich countries, but they can also sell their products within their own countries because people will want these things once they know how much better they are for you. So. So we have a lot of work to do in this space, but there is really an opportunity to make the transformation of our food system something that is equitable. And remember, of the world's 600 million farms, something like 550 million of them are small farmers, right? They're little people. And if you can give those people a better way to make money in a more sustainable fashion that's about producing a premium product that they can sell almost directly to you, 
through this amazing thing called the internet, maybe they can stay on their land and keep those farms rather than get sucked up by huge uh, agglomerations and enormous farms and enormous scales. Julian Lampietti, thank you so much for joining me. You've been listening to Table for 10 Billion, a podcast from the World Bank. We'll be back next month. I'm Jason Fields.